you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to one of the most hallowed texts in all of the scriptures, Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. As you turn there, I just want to mention, I have a special guest here today, Joey and Connie Hanner. I, I normally would not point out guests if you're visiting with us, um, but Joey had a tremendous, tremendous impact on me. It was very formative in my ministry, and they surprised us today. And so I'm, I'm so thankful for you, you two, and uh, it's a joy to have you guys worship with us this morning. So we are ordaining a deacon, Keith, and I wanted to ordain you during this series on the servant songs because the word deacon means servant. That the prototypical deacon, the standard of deacon is Christ. It's Christ. It's the servant, Christ. It's a heavy, heavy, heavy weight, but you are yoked to him to carry it. So I want you to hear those words with that kind of force and that kind of impact. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, we'll read all the way through chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. My servant being Christ. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like Sheep have gone astray. We turn every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, This world tells us that we need a claim to matter. This world tells us that we need to succeed in money and succeed in 
business and succeed in family and succeed in athletics for our lives to amount to anything. And I pray this morning that by the power of the Spirit, by the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ, that you would set us free from the bondage of those definitions. I pray instead that you would call us to satisfying servanthood where we find a single definition of success, the glory of your name. I pray, Father, this morning for our flock that we would be submitted entirely to your will to honor you in all that we do. I pray for Keith and for Kylie, for Camille and for Collins, your blessing over the Wilson family as we set him apart as a distinct servant in this congregation. We offer all this up to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the original lie is that all of us need more personal freedom that we might have and enjoy more self-indulgence for the purpose of a more satisfying life. If you think about Adam and Eve in the garden all those years ago, the serpent comes to them and he tempts them to eat of the fruit that God had forbidden. And it was because they were wanted the opportunity to be able to enjoy the pleasures and the, uh, the, the happinesses that had been apparently withheld from them. And so he tempts them by offering to them an opportunity of greater freedom, that by having this greater freedom, they could indulge themselves more, and indulging themselves more have deeper and more satisfying pleasure in their lives. But what we know, if we read on, is they don't end up happier, do they? They don't end up more satisfied, do they? They don't end up with greater significance and greater meaning in their lives. Rather, they end up shivering and ashamed, hiding their faces that no one would see them. See, indulgence doesn't work, brothers and sisters. Indulgence doesn't work. In fact, indulgence actually delivers all of the exact opposite of what it promises. Indulgence comes... And it promises you that if you can buy more, if you can have more, if you can do more, that you'll feel like a a greater success in your life. But what happens when you have more, you do more, you buy more, you enjoy more, and yet the misery in your life persists? It only punctuates the sense of failure that you seem to know. Indulgence comes and it says that it can give greater meaning to your life. But when you live by the appetites of your stomach and you chase after the whims and the desires of your flesh and you continue to eat and you continue to enjoy and you continue to drink and you continue to to do all the things and chase all the pleasures, what actually becomes clear is exactly how empty you are. It defeats your sense of significance and your your sense of purpose and meaning. Indulgence comes and it says that it can make you happier, that it can lead you to a more content and satisfied life. And all of us are chasing a happier, content, and more satisfied life. But it takes you and it says, if you can just climb this mountain, if you can just aspire to the top of this hill and you can attain this mountaintop, once you get there, then your life will be settled and then your life will be content. But you get to the top of that mountain and what does it do? It just raises your gaze to the next mountain yet to be climbed, doesn't it? And you get to the top of that one and there's another mountain to climb. And you get to the top of that one and there's another mountain to climb. And it actually, rather than satisfying you and bringing contentment, it stirs in you a discontentment and a dissatisfaction. 
that happiness is always around the next corner. It's always at the top of the next hill, and it's, it's not attainable. No, indulgence doesn't work. But Israel didn't believe it. You could summarize all of the problems that they're facing by the time of Isaiah in the reality that they believe that indulgence and chasing after the gods that would satisfy their indulgences would be able to satisfy and fix all of their problems. That it would make them successful, it would give them significance, and it would ultimately bring about satisfaction. But what they... what. God's message through Isaiah to his people is is that indulgence hasn't worked and indulgence can't work. But they didn't believe it. And America doesn't believe it. And honestly, do we believe it? Do we believe it? That what we have, as we are presented with this servant throughout the, the book, the prophecy of Isaiah is a a golden thread of the person of Christ who comes and here culminating in Isaiah 52 and 53 with a a picture hundreds of years beforehand of the cross of the cross is showing us another way the way that is actually effective the way that will bring about a transformation the way that will bring about success in our lives and and enjoyment in our lives and contentment in our lives purpose and significance in our lives that one of the ways that we could summarize the work of Jesus on the cross is to say that the cross is, the, is, the, is where the greatest act of self-denial in cosmic history overcomes all of the consequences of self-indulgence. And there at the cross, Jesus says to us, take up your cross and follow after me. That the cross is a means by which we are saved and it is now the pathway for the saved. It is, for us, a surprising pathway to satisfaction. That the surprising pathway to satisfaction, as we see in the cross, is not self-indulgence, but servanthood. That servanthood is the success in this life. And servanthood is a place of significance in this life. And servanthood is the place where real and genuine, lasting satisfaction is known. And so I want us to look at those three surprises from Christ. First, I want you to see that servanthood is success. That servanthood is success. Kids have a lot to teach us in general, I think. But I think they especially have a lot to teach us about success. A few years ago, or a year ago, I say a few years ago, he's not old enough to be a few years ago. A year ago, uh, we were going through the potty training process with Josiah, right? And we're going, and the mission is simple. It's clear, isn't it? Use the toilet, man. Use the toilet. He goes and he uses the toilet. And the whole house erupts in applause like the kid had just won the Pulitzer Prize. He comes out, chest poked up, man. He's proud of himself. Hand me my sucker. Give me my prizes. Let me hear the accolades today. I am a success. It's a simpler time, isn't it? As we get into adulthood, as we grow and we mature, success becomes more complicated, doesn't it? It becomes more complex. It, it, it turns into a moving target that it feels like we almost never can hit. That what I think happens for us is that with a, an indulgence mentality, it creates for us a servant, a, a success trap. That, for example, perhaps... Your definition of success revolves around your career and you 
want to attain a particular standing in your company and you work and you wake up early and you stay at work late and you neglect other areas of your life because you want to be successful in your career and then and then you get it you get it all of a sudden you change offices to the corner office all of a sudden the name plate outside the door is different all of a sudden the one on your desk is a little bit fancier and people start saying yes sir and no sir yes ma'am and no ma'am to you and no sooner do you get in that office you think, you know, I'd really like a different job. I'd really like the one above me. Or, you know, I bet at this company over here or in this place over here, they would really appreciate my talents and really appreciate what I, that you would think that you got and you worked and you, you finally attained that job and you would come in it and you would enjoy it and you would say, now I am a success. But instead, the target moves. It was a trap. And you can apply this to every single definition of success you might have. You can apply this to a mother and her parenting. You can apply this to a father in athletics. You can apply this to your ability to lose weight or your ability to save money. Whatever the definition is, you go and you, you get it and you attain it. And as soon as you have it, it's not as satisfying as you expected. It was a trap, a mirage. It's a moving target that you can't seem to hit. But what Jesus shows us is that what if, what if the means to a more successful life is a simplification and a clarification of what that success means? Like a child. That is, what if you pursued the path of a servant? For the servant, success is simple, isn't it? If the master says he was a success, he was a success. If the master says that he was a failure, he was a failure. It's, it's clear, un, unambiguous lines. You know I'm a success or I'm not a success. I've been effective or I've been ineffective. It's, it's, it becomes apparent. But I think what Jesus shows us, brothers and sisters, is liberating. That servanthood is actually a pathway to a successful life. A successful life. Now, your definitions matter a lot right here. Your definitions matter a lot. The, the prosperity gospel twist. The, your, your definitions matter a lot. But what we see here is the servant is called successful by his master, by his father in heaven. That the opening line of the servant song is, he will be a success. Look at what it says there in verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Wisely. Now, Wisely here carries with it a deeper connotation than someone that's just good with their money or someone that has great insight into hard decision making. Wisely, the word there carries with it the, the outcomes of a wisely lived life. It, it was a, a way to say that, that this is a person who is prospering. This is a person that, that is living in shalom, living in peace and flourishing in all aspects of their lives because they're living according to the designs of God and applying to their lives the words of God and trusting in the promises of God. And so it was a way for them to say that this man was prospering, that he was a success, to put it in our terms. And it is made in no uncertain way. It's, it's given in a, a threefold manner. It says, behold, he sh my servant shall act wisely. He shall be a, 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 a success. He shall be high and lifted up that, that others will notice that he will be acknowledged as one that is successful, one that has prospered in my will. And he shall be 
exalted, that he is one that, that in my kingdom and in my, among my people and before the throne of heaven, he is one that will be held up. And so to give this three-tier declaration of his success is to say that he will be successful in the highest degree of the word, the, the, the nth degree, and infinitely so that there are not enough adjectives that you can heap onto him to de- declare and to describe the amount of success that he will achieve and he will attain. And this is what Isaiah's original audience would have assumed would be true of the Messiah. The Messiah was the one that was going to come and deliver them. He was going to be the new king. And so I, I want to point out again that my servant here, I, I pointed this out in a, a couple of weeks ago, it carries with it at least a twofold meaning. First of all, quite, quite simply, it, it carries forward one who simply obeys God. One who obeys the will of God. One who keeps the law of God. One who, who is committed to walk out the call of God on their life, whatever that looks like. Okay, so, so we're getting here to the definition. When I use success, that's what we're talking about, right? That one who is my servant is going to be one who walks. But here, there's a second meaning because he's talking about a very specific servant, right? So what we also said is that my servant has a royal connotation because David is often referred to as my servant. And so here's supposed to be one who will fulfill the will of God, be a man after God's own heart in the line of David that now will come and deliver his people. And again, everybody is on board. But Isaiah is setting us up for quite a shock. Isaiah is preparing us for a surprise because we come to the first verse and we hear about the servant and we're hearing everything that we expect. He's supposed to be a success. He's supposed to be exalted. He's supposed to be high and lifted up. He is supposed to be all of those things. The difference with this servant is that his success will actually look like failure. His success will actually look like failure. As many were astonished at you, he said. See, I used the word surprise very intentionally there. Astonish doesn't just simply mean to be really surprised by something or really shocked by something. It it, it means to be repulsed by something, to be appalled that something could be true. It, it carries with it a sense of, of abhorrence, of, of being revolted, of being, of being shocked because it's so grotesque. So, so, so there's this turn of phrase, isn't there? He's going to be exalted, but you're going to be repulsed by him. You're going to be appalled at him. His appearance is going to be so marred that he's not even going to look like a human being anymore. He's going to look more like an it than a him. Less like a man, more like a thing. That is, his appearance is going to be so mauled, so so uncovered that he would be hardly recognizable to his own mother. And you're going to see him in this gory, bloody mess. And you're going to assume that this could not be my servant. You're going to assume that this is one who is not obedient to my word. You're going to assume that this is one that is under my curse, not under my blessing. You're going to assume that he has failed at what is before him. That all of human uh, mankind will look at him and they will say, he does not look like one of us. But by the blood that is shared through that marred appearance, he will become a sprinkling for the nations. They, They would take the blood of the sacrifices and they would sprinkle the altar to make the altar holy. But this one who is marred, this one who is his servant will take upon himself a hard obedience and he himself will be the sacrifice and his blood will be splattered on his people that they might be made holy and clean. And this one that you can't stand to look at, this one that revolts you, this one that you find abhorrent, one day 
kings will have their eyes opened. And when these kings have their eyes opened, their mouths will be shut in his presence because he will be one who is highly exalted. He is one who will be high and lifted up. He is one that they will know. They have no comeback for. But here, here what we see is that Jesus is flipping the concept of success that we all hold on its head. That in the economy of heaven, in the economy of heaven, the indulgent will be emptied. And the servants will be exalted. In the economy of heaven, those who live for themselves and live for their desires and live for their appetites and live for their bellies, they will find themselves utterly and totally silenced in the presence of those that live their lives sold out to the glories of God and sold out to the will of God and committed to the hard obediences that might lie ahead. See, what all of us have to decide is all of us have to decide what our definition of success really is. All of us have to decide what our definitions of success really are. Is success to be able to outachieve and outperform all of your colleagues? If so, it's a moving target. It's, it's a trap. You'll, you'll never know if you hit it or not. There's always someone that can perform better than you, isn't there? Is, is success the ability to, to win over the approval of your neighbors or to win over the approval of your parents or to, to in some way make all of them recognize that, that you've attained a level that they've not been able to attain? If so, it's a moving target. It's a trap. You'll never know if you actually hit it. Is success the ability to come to the end of your life with fewer wrinkles on your face and a more upgraded house than everybody else around you? Well, if so, it's a trap. Who cares if you hit that or not? You're dead. Or is success such a committed obedience in the service of God that all of heaven stands in acknowledgement that what you've done is of eternal consequence and significance? How do you define success? Keith, as a deacon in our church, you are to be a model of the biblical definition of success. You are to be a reminder to all of us that indulgence does not work, but that servanthood is the pathway to success in the kingdom. You are to live your life in a way that is emptied of all of the false definitions of this world defined to say, if the world calls me a failure so long as heaven stands. Surprising to us, perhaps, that servanthood is success, and it's surprising to us that servanthood is significant. That servanthood is significant. More than one psychologist has noted that human beings are meaning makers. That embedded within the software that was given to us by our designer is an impulse to say either, what does this mean, or this is what this means. Depending on how sure of yourself, we'll say that way, you perhaps are. That we experience something, we encounter something, we witness something, and our, our first responsibility, our first reaction is to find some way to assign meaning to that. And in this way, our age doesn't do us much of a service. We live in a time that says, go and live by your own desires, go and live and indulge yourself, have everything that you want. Live according to your own truth, where the individual is the king. You, you have your own truth, you have your own desires, you have your own goals, you have your own definitions. And, and you are really, and what you have, and what you know, and what you experience is all that really matters. What you believe is true is the only thing that matters. What happens 
What happens? Well, when life becomes radically individualized, suddenly you are separated from any larger picture. You, you have no place to fit, in other words. You have no place in which you can come and say, this is my purpose and this is my meaning. Your purpose and your meaning only becomes about having the next pleasure. It only becomes about having and enjoying the next uh, sophisticated sensibility. So is there any wonder why in our age there is such an identity crisis? Is there any wonder why in our age... Everyone seems so confused as to why they fit in. Is there any wonder why in our day that, that the offices of therapists are packed out with people saying, what in the world does all this mean? What Jesus is showing us, what Jesus is showing us is that the pathway to significance is in the opposite direction of the one we've been searching. That the pathway to significance is through servanthood. The pathway to meaning is through servanthood. The pathway to purpose is through servanthood. You could take this psalm, and if you'll just indulge me for just a second, you could take this servant song, and you could break it up into five stanzas. There's a, a beautiful symmetry, and each of the stanzas have three verses. And so you could look at stanza one, and stanza two, and stanza three, and stanza four, and stanza five. And this would start in 52, this would be... 13 through 15, and then this would be 1 through 3, and then this would be 4 through 6, and then this would be 7 through 9, and then this would be 10 through 12. And I point all of that out because the point is, is to say that this is the main point. This is the main thrust of what I want to communicate, is there's this chiasm that's supposed to show you at the top of the mountain. So you have, on one sense you're going up to the mountain, you have another sense in which you're coming down from the mountain. And what you see here in the middle is that it's framed up in a very particular way, in a very intentional manner, that it's written to be able to, to highlight it in a way that, that maximizes its impact as it comes and it, and it lands with you. So what I, want you to see, what I want you to see here is that there are two frames to the portrait that Isaiah is painting according to the Word of God. There's two frames that are framing up a portrait, and these two frames could really be summarized as two curse words to the modern world. Don't get nervous, not real curse words, but metaphorical curse words. To the first, I want you to see that he is lowly. That he is lowly. He is a humble man. Listen to what it, how it describes Jesus, how it's framing him up, who it's framing him up to be. Remember, this is a shock to the system, to those that are expecting this conquering warrior to come and ride in on a white horse. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. This isn't fertile soil, this is dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty. He's not a, no GQ model here, right? Or I just put an X, GQ model here. This is an unimpressive man. That you see him born and you don't immediately think that's going to be a king. He's not Saul, in other words. He's not the one that everybody is clamoring to go and to lead them against uh, Babylon or Assyria or Persia or Rome one day. He's not the one anybody would have chosen. This is the kid that's chosen last in every, every team he's ever been on. This is the one that is not voted most likely to succeed. This is the one that is for, so forgotten he's not even listed on the ballots. This is going to be a man who's going to be born in a barn, laid in hay, and then nailed to a cross. This is how it describes him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. See if this rings a bell. The way that they're describing is what they're saying is he's going to be far more known for his suffering than for his prosperity. He's going to be far more known for his grief than for his ease of life. He's going to be far more famous for his crown of thorns than he is for his crown of gold. He's a lowly man, an unsuspecting man. The last man any of you would choose to be your Messiah. That's the first half of the frame. Now, it dovetails nicely into the second half. Not only is he lowly, oh my goodness, what a curse word this is in our day. He is submissive. He is submissive. That he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. No protest to him. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And your mind has to go to Pilate. When Pilate says, defend yourself, why do they say that you're the king of the Jews? Why do they say that you're an insurrectionist? And he looks at Pilate and says not a word. He was not protesting the brutality of God's will in his life. He was submissive. A self-effacing, submissive servant. You start throwing around the word submissive in our culture and everyone gets offended. Start throwing around the word humility and lowliness and aiming at lowliness. Everyone is taken aback. Why? Why are these seen as curse words in our age? Why is lowliness and humility? Why is submissiveness? Why are these curse words in the modern sensibility? It's because we perceive them as weakness. We perceive them as weakness. That to be a servant is to be to live a life that is of the least importance in our minds. To, to live a life as a servant, it means I have to live according to someone else's truth. It means I have to live up to someone else's standards. It means I have to live by, by a set of rules that I didn't write myself. It means that I don't get to say and have ultimate authority over all the, the various decisions that I make in my life. It means that there is one above me and I want to be autonomous and I want to define the truth. And I want my opinions to rule the day and to be a servant, to be submissive, to be humble. is to acknowledge that none of that is true. So what does Jesus show us? That what the cross is doing is the cross is inverting all of our values on their heads. He's flipping them upside down. Because what he wants for us to see is to recognize that in his servant is one who has found his place. In his servant is one that has lived a life of true significance. In his servant is one that is living a life that is actually mattering. And so yeah, it's foolish to the world, but it's wise in the economy of the cross. And what's wise in the world is foolish in the economy of the cross. That what looks like strength is actually weakness. And what looks like weakness is actually strength. And what seems like dying is actually living. And what looks like living is actually dying. That he's inverting and he's flipping it all on its head. Because what he's doing is he's framing up 
for us that the access, the experience of God's power in our lives does not come through indulgence. That does not come through trying to find our own way. It does not come by defining our own truth. It does not come by living according to our own opinions. The experience of God's power comes by humbling ourselves before him and being submissive to the will that he's given to us. That what we are seeing in the cross is a portrait of the power of God. This is what servants have access to. You have to understand the big question that's being asked is presented there in verse 1. I put it at the bottom of your screen. That the question he asked there at the end, who has believed what he has heard from us? And here it is. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Throughout the last three chapters of Isaiah up to this point, God has continually promised, my arm is going to deliver you. My arm is going to save you. My arm is going to rescue you. It's this idea of of the mighty military power of God. And so the question that's coming up in the minds of our people that are being answered by the suffering servant is this, who is going to exercise the power of God? And God is saying, it's the one that you're killing. It's the one that you're hating. It's the one that you're rejecting. It's my servant. It's my servant. That he, though lowly, and though he, though submissive, he, though apparently weak, is the one through whom I am channeling my eternal and glorious power. That's why the climax of all of this is verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He submitted. He was submitted himself to the nails being driven through his hands and his feet. He submitted himself humbly under the will of God. Why? He was crushed for our iniquities. Our sin came and bore down and was weighted on him and hung upon him on the cross and the wrath of God fell upon him. They had deemed him stricken and in fact they were half right. He was stricken according to the wrath of God. But upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He submitted himself to the lashes across his back. And with his wounds, we are healed. That there was enmity between us and heaven. But he has bridged the gap by his own submission. By his own humility. He has accomplished the greatest work. The greatest demonstration of the power of God in all of cosmic history. By taking and reconciling me and reconciling you with a God that ought to have had enmity with us. He took all of your brokenness. And he put you back together again and made you whole. Brothers and sisters, what is power? What is power? Is power the ability to demand your employees to do what you ask? Is power the ability to demand your kids do what you ask? Is power the ability to go and to buy whatever car you want? Is power the ability to have whatever zip-coded address you desire? Or is power the ability to make the broken whole again? One is fake and faux. One is real and transcendent. See, what the servant shows us, what Jesus shows us, is that power, power is experienced by those who are willing to make themselves weak and foolish in this world. To live for a God that no one else can see because they, their eyes have been opened and they believe and they love him. That to know real power 
is to know real significance. And to know real significance is to actually live as one subservient to the will of God. Because key, what the cross shows us is that there is no service too lowly for God to redeem. That if God can redeem the cross of his servant to bring reconciliation among those on the earth, he can take whatever locking of doors and unlocking of doors and filling baptistries and scrubbing carpet. And he can take whatever lowly service it is that we have to offer and he can take it and make it great and powerful in the economy of heaven. Oh, there's nothing above you, brothers and sisters. There's nothing above me. Because our example is the cross. Our definition is the cross. And the cross is what will be exalted on that day. Oh, you have a place of significance. It just may not look significant to your mom and dad. And it may not look significant to your neighbors. And it may not look significant even to your own kids. But heaven stands. Heaven stands. Because what you do doesn't matter now. It matters forever. It's a surprise, isn't it? It's a surprise that servanthood is the pathway to significance. Finally, it's surprising that servanthood can be satisfying. Satisfying. Contentment provoking. Happiness enjoying. Satisfying. See, we, we have a lot of baggage as Americans when it comes to the whole concept of servanthood. Our, our context really is chattel slavery, isn't it? Where human beings are sold as commodities, where they're brutalized and treated with injustice. That's not the backdrop of the servanthood that we're talking about here. What we're talking about is something called bond servants. Bond servants. Paul, throughout the, the epistles that he writes, he, he opens up the book of Romans this way. He says, I am a bond servant of Christ. Do you know what he means by that? See, a bondservant was someone that they placed themselves into slavery. Or they placed themselves into the servant of a master. That what a bondservant would say is they would say that my life is better as a servant to that master than it is living according to my own freedom. That my life is better in your house than if I have to go and build my own house. That I am happier living as your servant. I am more satisfied living as your servant. I am more content living as your servant. So please, please, please let me be your servant. Brothers and sisters, that's the picture. That's the picture. That, that what God is calling for us to recognize, what the cross beckons for us to recognize, is that personal freedom dries us up. That personal autonomy leads to misery. That self-indulgence doesn't work. That what works is service in the house of the Lord. That he is a kinder master than we are. And he is a, a better leader than we are. And his ways will enable us to flourish in ways that our, our ways leave us floundering. And so it's interesting what he says, the way he lands the servant song, isn't it? Listen to what it says, verse 10, that last stanza. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. We got that already. He has put him to grief. We got that already. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, now we get to the he shall, the future. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his day. Now I got to call a timeout here. Do y'all hear what just happened? 
He was dead, but now he's alive. He was put to death, but there's a future in which he will prosper. There is a hint, a picture, a declaration even of the resurrection right here all the way back in the servant's suffering servant. Verse 11, something that seems like a paradox. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Do you hear what it says? Out of his anguish. Out of the anguish that led him to sweat great drops of blood there in Gethsemane. Out of the anguish that had him call from the cross, I thirst. Out of the anguish that had him declare, my God, my God, why have you forsaken him? Out of the anguish shall come satisfaction. How does satisfaction come out of the anguish? Well, he tells us. Because of what he sees. It's because of what he sees on the other side of the resurrection. It's because of what he sees on the other side of the cross. It's because of what he sees his service has accomplished. That what he's talking about there is suddenly what the servant is enabled to see on the other side of the resurrection is the fruit of the seed that he has sown. What does he, what does he see? He sees many to be accounted righteous. You know what he sees? Do you know what makes Jesus say the cross was worth it? Do you know what it makes Jesus say that all of the anguish and all of the sweat, all of us, do you know what he sees? He sees us. He sees us. He sees us at peace with God. He sees us who were broken, made whole again. He sees us enjoying his presence for all eternity. He sees us declaring to highest heaven that there is none that is greater than our God. He sees us ruling with him among the nations. He sees us. He sees us made right with God and enjoying him forever. And he says, I am satisfied. All of it was worth it. Oh my goodness, church, what a vision for us. What a vision. Do you know why so many young men and young women in their 30s, 40s, and 50s come to a place of identity crisis? They see the fruit of their labors and they wonder what in the world difference did it make. They see the fruit of their life, of their self-indulgence, of living according to their individualism, and they look out over the expanse of their life and there is a nicer boat in the driveway. And there is a fancier nameplate on the desk in the office. And there are more degrees on the wall. But you just want a nicer boat. And you just want a nicer office. And all of the degrees on your wall did nothing to make you stop feeling like an imposter in every single room that you walk into. And you wonder, looking at the fruit of your life, what did it all amount to? What difference did any of it make? For the servant of God, for the servant of God, you come to the end of your life and you may have a life of no accolades and you may have a life of no acclaim and you may not have the degrees on your wall and you may not have the prominence in your office and you may not have the salary to match your neighbors. But I am here to tell you, brothers and sisters, if there is a tear to be found anywhere in all of heaven, it will be on the mama who is there when she watches her babies entering the gates after her. 
If there is a tear to be found in anywhere in heaven, it will be on the missionary whose family did not approve him to uproot the grandchildren who lived every day with a high intellect but dirt under his fingernails who will walk into the kingdom of God and take people with him and he will look over and she will look over the fruit of their lives and they will say it was all worth it. There was satisfaction. There will be satisfaction known, enjoyed forever. Billions and billions upon years. Brothers and sisters, Indulgence does not work. But servanthood does. Servanthood does. If there is more going to be for the next 10 billion years, more satisfaction in the heart of a janitor sold out to the will of God, then there will be for the highest paid CEO living in the, sitting in the plushest seats of the nicest car who lived for himself. Who will we be? Who will we be? Will we believe the cross? Will we believe the cross? Indulgence doesn't work, but the cross does. Keith, Keith, the responsibility of the deacon is to forsake a claim, to take up the cross, and to show it to the church. Will you, will you, Take up the cross. Will you choose the way of the cross? Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.